Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Michael Ramore from the City University of New York. I'm Stephen Liu. Uh, I'm a co-host. I'm from Cornell University. And today we're here to talk to Antoinette Burton, professor of history at the University of Illinois and the author of numerous indispensable works of British colonial history and of post-colonial histories, including the subject of today's interview, Africa and the Indian Imagination, Race and the Politics of Postcolonial Citation, published in 2016 by Duke University Press. Questioning easy narratives of Bandung-era Afro-Asian solidarity and Indian Ocean cosmopolitanism, Africa in the Indian Imagination, Race, and the Politics of Postcolonial Citation contends that mid-century third world imaginaries often placed Africa and Africans in a subordinate position to Asian national and civilizational identities. In particular, Burton offers a rereading of the development of Indian nationalism that places Africans and the African continent in a central, if troubling, role. In conversation, we'll learn how the hyphen of Afro-Asianism in the Third World era often appeared as a jagged hierarchy rather than as a symbol of equality. Speaking from New York, we're excited to welcome Antoinette Burton to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Thank you so much for taking us uh, taking the time to talk about your book. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start uh, with you. Can you just let us know a few words about yourself, uh, where you grew up, where you studied, how you became interested in your fields, and perhaps any mentors or scholars that especially influenced your work along the way? Sure. So I grew up in suburban Philadelphia, uh, and I came to imperial history rather circuitously in the course of my graduate education, but uh, that encounter with empire history really shaped the rest of my life. Um, I was a grad student at the University of Chicago in the 80s, where neither uh, women, gender, feminism, or really empire at home were considered to be legitimate historical subjects. And so from the beginning, as I wrote my dissertation on Indian uh, women and British feminists, I was kind of pushing against not even an orthodoxy, but just kind of an invisibility. And that uh, kind of fractious encounter, that kind of adversarial approach to the historical canon has carried me uh, to where I am today, I suppose. Um, Mentors and scholars, uh, you know, some people that I read and and loved and other people I knew been very, of course, impacted by Gayatri Spivak and Edward Said, who I never knew personally. I mean, met, met Spivak, but never knew her really. Um, very impacted by Catherine Hall, the feminist historian, and by a lot of uh, women of color, both historians and theorists and activists who were prominent in collections like This Bridge Called My Back in the 1980s, Audre Lorde, 
uh, and others. And of course, um, as the dedication to the book we're talking about today suggests, very inf influenced by Stuart Hall and his writing, as well as by his friendship. Thank you so much. Let's um, perhaps start um, talking about uh, the book uh, that Mikey and, and I uh, have been uh, really inspired by. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the process of um, the research and um, the writing of the book? Can, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this project? Sure. So um, as the book suggests, I uh, grew impatient uh, in the early 2000s, I guess, with the revival of a certain version of the Bandung narrative, one that both um, imagined the Bandung spirit as a spirit of, of confraternity and also one that seemed to float pretty high above ordinary social and cultural lived experience. And I particularly was frustrated by the inattention to questions of uh, gender and sexuality and interracial encounter. And so I don't actually remember which of these chapters started me out, uh, but I was very interested in the relations between Indians and Africans. I knew that in the context of, of Britain at home, there had been some solidarities between people of African descent and South Asians, but also some frictions. And uh, I've always been interested in the work of diasporic Indian women. And so it was natural that um, a number of the, of the texts in the book should circulate around those. Uh, and so I began to do research from afar on the South African context and ended up going to South Africa and um, starting out in the library uh, and then ultimately uh, through the very good offices of the librarian at Killy Campbell, I ended up meeting Phyllis Naidu, which really changed the whole project because Phyllis had me, invited me to her apartment. She filled my head and my hands with books and stories and um, led me through an archive um, both at um, Durbin, Durbin Westville, but also in her own house that really backlighted so many amazing histories for me. So Phyllis was a really important uh, motivator in this project. I would just note here at the beginning of the interview that, as you might know, this book was originally published in India under a different title, uh, Brown Over Black, Race and the Politics of Postcolonial Citation by Three Essays Collection in Gergaon. Uh, and I really wanted to write for Three Essays Collective. I loved the idea of a, of a collective um, that circulated, if not literally, then kind of metaphorically around the kind of multiple essay form. And so I'm not sure this book is a monograph. It never aspired to be. It really... Um, was designed to fulfill the remit of that three essays collective um, and to, you know, to produce a kind of radical history. So the Duke version of this, um, you know, got a new title and a, and a really interesting title, um, not Brown over Black, obviously, but um, African, the Indian Imagination with the same subtitle. Um, and I think I'd like, I'd like readers to think of the books in tandem, I guess. Thank you so much. 
so um, when I first read the book, I myself was really uh, intrigued by uh, your approach to uh, the archive. Um, so as a historian uh, myself, um, so uh, I generally don't uh, really uh, read uh, fiction or um, really see fiction as uh, um, archival sources. Can you tell us a little bit about your approach to uh, the question of the archive? Uh, for this project? Sure. So um, I've been thinking about the archive for a very long time. Um, you might know I, I wrote a book called Dwelling in the Archive, which is about Indian women's writing in the uh, late colonial period, in Indian women, women's writing in English. I also edited a collection called Archive Stories. So for a long time, I've been invested in um, reading it against the grain, but also subverting the kind of hegemony of the conventional archive not just to read for its silences, but to think about how we might extend what counts as archival knowledge or archival traces and read for social and cultural and political and economic histories in those alternative spaces. And fiction for me has always been one of those places. Um, so in Dwelling in the Archive, I wrote about a partition novel uh, and that's where I really first flexed, as as it were, my my kind of archival, alternative archival muscle, and really began to think and press the limits of what uh, fiction could do, limits and possibilities of what fiction could do to help us conjure um, historical experiences and worlds that weren't available by any other means. And so by the time I got to this book, to the writing of this book, I was completely persuaded <laughs> You know, not just by my own experience, but lots of people talking in the in that sort of 15 year period, I suppose, between the end of the 90s and the middle of the two, 210s, lots and lots of people engaging with the question of the archive. And so it was easy enough for me to think about the text in the in this book as really rich uh, recesses of embedded experiences, affect, emotion. Um, and lives that the regular archive wasn't going to yield, particularly around the sexualized or gendered encounter between Indian people of Indian and, and African descent. And so um, I was interested in desegregating the literal and imaginative spaces in which highly charged racial histories had unfolded um, because they were such a rich vein in these texts and they really couldn't be found anywhere else. Thank you. And so with that, let's turn to the book and its chapters. Um, so the book consists of four chapters with an introduction and an epilogue. Let's just go through them. So beginning with the introduction, citing slash citing. So here I'll have to explain. Um, this is citing with a C and also citing with an S. Um, so citing Africa in the Indian uh postcolonial imagination. In the introduction, you describe a politics of citation both in the sense of alluding to and situating the African continent and Black Africans in the Afro-Asian imaginary, particularly during the mid-century uh, Bandung moment. Um, so could you explain this politics of citation for our listeners and how it implicitly or explicitly placed Africa in a subordinate position to the Indian subcontinent? So it seems to me that the question of citation is a way of understanding forms of hierarchy. Um, there's the citer and the cited, uh, the person who is invoking uh, whatever formation or identity and the person whose formation or the, the, 
the thing whose formation or identity is being cited. And the politics of citation is about making visible, materializing that act of framing rather than taking it as simply a natural gesture, either um, outside of history or above power or beyond politics. And it seemed to me as I read across these texts and read across other histories of the Indian Ocean world that uh, a certain kind of British civilizational and racial hierarchy um, ended up finding its way into these spaces, um, but then taking on a life of its own. So that for the British, brown was always above black. South Asia was always above Africa because Africa was considered to be at the bottom of the civilizational hierarchy in that white, brown, black uh, formation. Uh, And that a certain class of Indians, a certain... um, a certain kind of historical cross-section of Indians, either self-consciously or unselfconsciously, bought into that hierarchy and tended to make use of it in order to create uh, what ended up being uh, a post-colonial Indian identity. And so obviously it's not simply easily uh, identifiable as pre or post-1947. And in fact, I think as these texts shows that these texts show there was a pre-post-colonial tendency to, to make those kinds of invocations. And of course, as I talk about at great length in the beginning, there was a lot, there has been a lot of historiography on Gandhi and his work in South Africa uh, as a way of suggesting Um, or implying more often than not, um, and with some contentious um, consequences, um, what an egalitarian he was across races. And that, of course, has ended up being a very complicated story, one which I completely sidestep in this book, because I really wanted to get other voices besides Gandhi and Nehru, for example, into the frame. And so that politics of citation is very dependent, as I talk about in the introduction, on Toni Morrison's um, book. Oh my gosh, I can see the book now, but I can't think of the title. Um, Oh, Playing in the Dark, where she suggests that at the heart of all American literature, white American, presumptively white American literature, are African-American characters who hold up the narrative, who um, are lurking at the edges or are actually narrative drivers in ways that are not self-evident because they don't appear to be protagonists but they are actually the agents of the action and the identity formation of whites. And so I've borrowed very strongly from what I think is a very powerful conceptual framework and suggested that Indians in the making of their own identity relied heavily in imaginative terms on Africa and Africans to shore up their own uh, racial uh, distinction from Africans, racial proximity to to white folks and to European civilization, and in the process, produce this uh, complex of brown over black. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, then in uh, the first chapter, um, you actually uh, showed very well how you explore this politics citation. So uh, the first chapter focuses on the African characters in Ansuya Singh's novel, Behold the Earth Mourns which chronicles the emergence of political awareness among Indians in mid-20th century South Africa. 
you read this word as an archive and citation of Afro-Asian entanglements in South Africa. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the roles um, that um, African um, characters in this um, novel play um, and in terms of, um, I guess, the unfolding of the novel? And uh, what um, does um, the novel review about uh, the heteronormative logics and desires that structure accounts of Afro-Asian connections? Thank you. That is a very um, complicated question, uh, but I will try, try to do justice to it. First of all, I would say that uh, to any listeners, if you haven't read the novel Behold the Earth Mourns, I would highly recommend it. It is a beautiful novel, lyrically written, extremely evocative, um, with vibrant characters, amazing evocations of scenery and scenes, and I think an archive of a certain social history of um, South Asian entanglements in South Africa. So the story revolves around um, uh, a young man, a young Indian man who is um, seeking his political education around the kinds of uh, resistances and, and movements that, you know, Gandhi himself was involved in, uh, in relation to um, what would, would eventually become full-blown apartheid, but which started off um, in, uh, I suppose, a, a more minor key at the beginning of the 20th century with uh, um, constrictions um, imposed upon Indian mobility um, in, in, in South Africa. And the gist of the, of the novel is the political education of this character and his encounter with a variety of African interlocutors who reveal to him the limits of his uh, capacity for resistance and also remind him of the plurality of racial struggles in South Africa itself. And um, equally key to the novel and circling back to something I said at the very beginning about um, the comparative invisibility of questions of race and gender um, and sexuality and, and those uh, entanglements uh, the question revolves around uh, Indian futurity, uh, the reproduction of, of Indians in South Africa through marriage choice, and the ways in which uh, that kind of investment in a kind of endogamous community um, is constantly under pressure through the possibility of not necessarily always sexualized encounters, but dangerous uh, mixed uh, male-female encounters between uh Indian women and African men. And uh, these are not the kinds of uh, histories, social histories that are readily available in the official archive. I think they're available through some kinds of print culture um, uh, work in South Africa in this time period, that is to say in the 1960s or 1960 when this novel was written. Um, and in, also in some photographic archives, but I think the stories that we get of Indian men and women and African men tumbling around, bumping into each other in this highly charged political atmosphere um, is very unique and gives us an opportunity to understand that um, the, Africa, the African Indian encounter was an encounter at the site of gender and sexuality as well. Thanks. And that leads us to chapter two, race and the politics of position above and below and Frank Moray's The Importance of Being Black. So in this chapter, you offer a reading of Frank Moray's uh, The Importance of Being Black and Asian looks at Africa. 
as challenging, and this is a quote, South-South uh, political solidarity that was presumed to crosshatch the post-colonial third world in the wake of the 1955 Afro-Asian Solidarity Conference at Bandung. So how does Moraes' book uh, present the position of Africa in the Bandung area? Or, sorry, era, and how might it change our preconceptions about third world solidarity uh, or Indian nationalism? Thank you. So um, how does Maury's book present the position of Africa in the Bandung era? Well, he positions it as a kind of flyover formation. So this, this uh, book is an account of his travels across the continent uh, and many of the descriptions begin with his view from the airplane. And so the above and below frame is absolutely built into the entire text. So he uh, flies over, he describes, but he also conjures that hierarchical uh, reference point, the politics of that particular citationary practice across all of his visits and encounters. And he himself, therefore, is staged as the overlooker, <laughs> not just an onlooker or an observer, but someone looking from above to below. And that perspective really never leaves him in the book. Uh, when he touches down on the ground, he's still retaining that promontory airplane view. And I, in the chapter, I um, obviously acknowledge that the book is written in 1965. We are almost 20 years past Indian independence. And yet um, Indians like Mores and other um, folks in the Nehru era tended to view Africa as an opportunity for Indians, for self-fashioning and self-making. Um, and he details a lot of the settler colonial um, experiences in Africa and, and of Indians in Africa and helps us to appreciate the pervasiveness of that airplane view. And the last thing I'll say is that I spend a little bit of time um, thinking about this 1960s perspective and comparing um, his promontory view from the airplane to Gandhi's, you know, traveling incarceration, the question of the train and how the traveling in the train, particularly the famous story in, in South Africa of Gandhi being thrown off the train in Peter Maritzburg because um, he was traveling in the wrong class for an Indian, the ways in which those forms of technological mobility can help to shore up certain kinds of, of race and class attitudes. Thank you. And yeah, I'm also interested in how you read these politics of position as also a kind of uh, politics of literary form. And this is uh, picked up in chapter three, um, fictions of post-colonial development, race, intimacy, and Afro-Asian solidarity in Chanakaya Sen's The Morning After. So in this chapter, you read uh, Sen's The Morning After as a post-colonial bildungsroman, uh, that's your phrase, that links the narrative of Indian national development to an anxiety over interracial intimacies of, of Afro-Asian solidarity and of the kind of Bandung moment. Um, so how does the novel represent these anxieties and why are they found so threatening? So this is also a wonderful novel um, of the kind that is so filled with 
cultural insight and an observation that you really can't even quite believe it. Um, it it's just it stages the encounter between um, Africans who have been um, recruited to India to learn from um, India's post-colonial Nehruvian development miracle and are brought into the heart of um, aspirational middle-class Indian post-colonial society uh, and thrown into uh, in this one situation, a family situation where there's a, a kind of um, unrealized romance between the daughter and one of the Af- Indian daughter and one of the African men. Um, and the tensions around the expectations uh, of, of a respectable Indian womanhood on the one hand and, um, you know, honest and yet um, somewhat, um, you know, very stereotypically represented African masculinity, uh, those kinds of tensions. But that's not the only site where this happens, these interracial encounters. We also get just this amazing scene of also one of these African men headed into a, a rural village where he encounters a, you know, a, a, a very faithful Gandhian trying to enact rural development um, practices. And again, they, the conversations that are staged between mostly Indian women and African men in this novel, the way they dance around sexual danger and entanglement and the way the author really uh, is incredibly candid uh, and of course, bordering on, if not also racist uh, representations, manages to conjure the tense and tender friction of these kinds of encounters. Uh, it's really an amazing, an amazing novel, and I'm surprised that more folks haven't kind of made use of it um, because it it is an archive of of things that have started to be more written about and and more researched, but. Um, None, I think, with the level of intensity and intimacy that we find in the novel. Thank you. Um, like chapter one, in chapter four, um, you um, also focus on a writer, uh, a South African writer of Indian descent. So um, in this chapter, um, you examine uh, what you call an aspirationally non-racial politics that um, emerges from a Phyllis Naidu's meticulous reconstruction of the lives of various people involved in anti-apartheid activism in her footprints in Gray Street. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about um, this non-racialism? Um, and uh, it'd be great also if you could tell us a little bit about um, uh, the work of uh, Phyllis Naidu as well. Thank you. So non-racialism is as I say in the chapter, a kind of peculiarly South African idiom. And I say peculiarly um, in, a, in a way that um, I think hopefully indicates how American I am in my approach to that. Um, so non-racialism, what could that possibly mean um, in a North American context uh, where it, 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 perhaps it might be translated as colorblindness, but that's not at all what it is. Non-racialism was a political commitment to disavowing, I think, the the power of racial hierarchy in favor of um, understanding solidarities across class lines, um, but certainly disavowing any kind of um, assumption of brown over black. And I think that what 
Phyllis is doing, as I say in the chapter, uh, through taking us taking us on a journey through the journey she takes us on through the lives of many uh, uh, black activists in the anti-apartheid, black and brown, uh, but a lot of Af- people of African descent activists in the anti-apartheid movement by memorializing them through their stories and by demonstrating the ways in which some people of South Asian descent uh, worked very hard to cross the the racial lines between their communities and African communities in politics and in other kinds of spaces. And the fact that Phyllis uh, is so invested in doing this uh, across all of these characters, um, what she calls Footprints in Gray Street, uh, tells us a lot about the the kind of um, solidity of that line between brown and black. Now, Famously, in Robben Island, Nelson Mandela and his um, Indian colleagues uh, found a lot of solidarity in their many years in jail. Outside the the walls, there was uh, prejudice in both directions, and there are a number of wonderful anecdotes in in Phyllis's work to demonstrate the ways in which um, some Africans thought Indians were coolies and called them that. And some um, Indians felt that Africans were shirkers of work and not able to, to, to do what they needed to do. So Phyllis is at pains to create a counter historical catalog of incidents where uh, those uh, um, relationships are laid bare. And also, as I say in the chapter, her own particular patronage of Africans um, is on display. So Phyllis herself is not outside of this um, politics of citation. In fact, you could say the Footprints in Gray Street is a kind of uh, enactment writ large of a politics of citation in the service of the politics of non-racialism. And again, it's a wonderful uh, book, Footprints in Gray Street. It's not widely available outside South Africa, but if you can get your hands on it, it's it's just the most amazing archive. um, And Phyllis's highly entertaining, mischievous, provocative um, esprit de corps is all over the book. Thank you. Um, I want to uh, kind of um, really um, kind of piggyback upon your um, suggestion, right? You uh, encourage people to read this book and you called that uh, this uh, um, work as an archive. And so in this chapter, you actually um, uh, call... um, Nanju's uh, um, work as an alternative archive. Can you tell us a little bit about the um, kind of historical and critical functions um, that um, this um, archive um, performed? Um, and in, in, in other words, how do Nanju's writings contribute to extent accounts of uh, apartheid's past? Mm, yes. So... Uh, in bringing all these stories and people's personal histories together in the book, Footprints in Gray Street, uh, Naidu is drawing on uh, written and visual archives that are scattered uh, across a variety of collections, but also in some cases were in her uh, personal collection or they existed in people's uh, own collections, or they were so ephemeral that they've now disappeared. And so I think 
one of the things that the book does in a kind of conventionally archival way is that it's a, it's a preservation device for uh, evidence that may, may exist somewhere, but is not visible all in one place. Uh, and I think it's a counter archive because I think that at the time that she was writing it in particular, even critical histories of anti-apartheid movements and anti-apartheid actors uh, were stories of, of Indian, uh, Indian community activism or, or black activists. And I think it's that coming back to one of your earlier questions, it's uh, her, her, the counter archival character of this book comes out of its desegregationist impulses. So it's, um, trying to, uh, resist the resegregation of the anti-apartheid story through um, helping us to see the complex entanglements of these communities. Um, sometimes it was brown over black, sometimes the reverse, um, but it was always entangled rather than on parallel tracks. And so in that sense, at least at the time that she was um, compiling it, uh, it was a, a kind of provocation uh, aimed at histories that tended to be uh, to tell kind of endogamous community stories. Thank you so much. Um, and um, I uh, would also want to uh, uh, kind of talk about um, the epilogue of this book, even though it's very short, but I think this epilogue itself is really, um, um, really just opens up a lot of questions about I guess, uh, doing research on Afro-Asian connections, on the history of the Indian Ocean world. Um, so in this epilogue, you uh, use um, this um, case of Ngugei uh, Wafiango's Wizard of the Crow to really call for the centering of questions of race, gender, sexuality, and their uh, intersections with the caste, ethnicity, and the race in kind of charting the histories of uh, Afro-Asian connection. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, uh, the kind of uh, um, contribution that you think um, this um, uh, your your work makes uh, uh, in uh, the field of Afro Asian studies or in the Ocean Studies, and um, uh, what uh, kind of uh, frameworks that you think people should um, uh, pay attention to when they uh, write about those histories? Thank you. So yes, I mean, I, I use Wizard of the Crow in the uh, epilogue because um, the characters in it uh, really uh, speak to the longevity of this um, relationship between Indians and Africans in the Indian Ocean world uh, around questions of sexuality and uh, gender. And I guess I would say that um, I hope the book... Uh, helps us to continue to demand uh, of historians and other scholars that they place questions of the entanglement of race and gender and sexuality and class at the heart of their stories of Afro-Asian formation um, and Indian Ocean world uh, histories. Partly because I think that one of the legacies of Bandung is a kind of romance of racial confraternity uh, that I think probably existed in some spaces, but shouldn't be mistaken for the entirety of the imaginary landscape. And 
I think that focusing on women, gender, sexuality, heteronormativity, conjugality, reproductive futurity, all those questions bring us back to ground about what some of the stakes were for ordinary people or uh, subjects who really brushed up against the violences of the post-colonial and then in South Africa, the, the apartheid state. And that um, I think there's a lot to be gained from histories of friction as much as there is from histories of solidarity. Partly so, as I say at the very end, when we go about imagining our solidarities in the present, we can um, understand that, that you can live in solidarity through friction and difference. And so that, I guess, would be a kind of um, large takeaway. Uh, and on the ground more, I would say, let's get beyond the Nehru's and the Gandhi's and, and the famous folks and let's be thinking about what makes up, um, what helps to constitute a geopolitical imaginary um, in which a politics of citation is actually a historical artifact rather than um, the condition of the present. Thank you. So before we move on to any more questions, we'd love if you could just read a favorite passage from the book for us. Okay. Um, so I'm going to read um, from the introduction. Uh, which is the bottom of page 18. This project is part of three historiographical turns, one toward the Indian Ocean world among South Asianists, two toward histories that link the post-colonial experience and the Cold War among students of the later 20th century, and three toward analyses that insist on the impact of sexuality and gender in global politics among feminist scholars. Standing as I do at the crossroads of all three, I seek to cite post-colonial histories of Afro-Asian solidarity as manifestations of uneven and competing social and racial status between and across extranational spaces rather than simply as the result of global flows. A critical observation derived in part from the work of Africanist anthropologist James Ferguson. Despite the seduction of the horizontal, despite its emancipationist promise, we also have to attend to the historical realities of power relations, what Sarah Ahmed calls the force of the vertical, which cross-cut post-colonial and or global flows, and in some case, stop them in their tracks. Indeed, despite the presumptions of transnational connection that has undergirded post-colonial studies, according to Kelly and Kaplan, post-colonial theory itself tends to diagnose impasse, impasse thrown up not only by ideas, but by structures in the world. Even when it produces sparks that nurture collaboration, as it arguably does in the case of Phyllis Naidu, this kind of friction is what we should be alert to. As friction, it is akin to what Jospier Poir calls conviviality, that space between the quest for belonging and the exigency of critique. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad that our uh, listeners got to hear the music of the prose, because in addition to everything uh, that the book is, it's beautifully written. So oh, thank you for thank that. You. Thank you so much. Um, so we've taken a lot of your time, Antoinette. So for our final question, just what are you working on now? Uh, can you tell us about your current and future projects or what you hope to work on? Sure. So um, I've done a few things since this book, um, but most recently and, and kind of oddly, uh, this week, Duke has published a new collection that I co-edited with my colleague and beloved friend, Renice Mawani, called Animalia, an anti-imperial bestiary for our times. 
Uh, so it literally is a bestiary, A through Z, ape through Zebu. Uh, and it's attempt to catalog the uh, non-human animal world of the British Empire in more or less the 19th and pre-1940s, I'd say, uh, up to the pre-1940s, 19th century, pre up to the 1940s, not an attempt merely to describe that kind of interspecies um, experience or history, but also to demonstrate in every case how animals were actively disruptive agents, non-human animals were actively disruptive agents of the British Empire. Uh, and so uh, the emphasis is on disruption and trouble which has been a kind of theme of mine as well in the, in the sphere of empire studies. And so with the launch of the book, I, I realized that I, I kind of have actually taken the animal turn. And so that's the direction I'm headed in. I'm collaborating with Renisa and a colleague here named Sam Frost um, on a new project called Biocultural Empires, um, which is um, inspired by Sam's amazing book called Biocultural Creatures, A New Theory for the Human, where she tries to help us think about how we can stop conceptualizing the human non-animal world across that binary. So I guess I'm, I'm still questing to make the, the binaries more jagged <laughs> than, they, <laughs> than they appear to be. Uh, and uh, we have a lot, we had 20 collaborators in Animalia. So I've learned a tremendous amount from all those folks and look forward to more collaboration with my colleagues um, in the interspecies world of empire. That all sounds great. So thank you, Antoinette. It's been a real pleasure to discuss your work with you. Oh, thank you so much for the great questions and for uh, thinking of me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And also thanks to our listeners for tuning into today's episode in which we explored Africa in the Indian imagination, race, and the politics of postcolonial citation, published in 2016 by Duke University Press. This is your host, Michael Ramore. And I'm your co-host, Zifeng Liu. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.